Bibles, please open to Psalm 19. As you're opening, you'll, you'll remember the last several months, I think since April, we've been going through the book of Proverbs. I think we've had around 18 sermons on the book of Proverbs. And you're going to have one more, actually, next week. Daryl will be preaching our final sermon from the book of Proverbs. But uh, today, we're actually starting the next series that we're going to begin and kind of run it through the end of this year, maybe even into January of next year. And it's a series on the Psalms. And today, we're going to start with Psalm 19. So if you are able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man, runs its course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Pray with me, please. Lord, settle your word in our hearts. It is a piercing sword that divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intents of our heart. Lord, let us receive it with gladness and great joy. Teach us about yourself and about the things of God today, about your wisdom through this psalm. Remove every distraction that we might focus upon worshiping you through the preaching of your word. If there's someone here who doesn't know Christ, may we... May your Holy Spirit do that which only you can do. Draw that one to yourself savingly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As we read through the pages of Scripture, we're going to find all kinds of different literature, different genres of Scripture throughout Genesis to Revelation. You know, if you start with kind of Genesis, Exodus, we get into what's called historical narrative, stories that Moses tells, those long stories of Abraham or Moses. That's one type of literature. 
You get into wisdom literature when you read things like Proverbs, which we studied a few, the last few months, Song of Solomon. Another type of literature in the Old Testament is prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. They're declaring to us what the Lord is doing and what the Lord will do. We get into the New Testament, we find the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are eyewitness accounts from men who watched the life of Jesus, and they're writing it down so that we can see what Jesus has done. You move on in the New Testament, you get to the letters of Paul, individual letters that he is writing to a specific church or a specific person with tenderness and care. So we have so many different types of literature in Scripture. Well, today we come to another type, a brand new type, one we haven't mentioned yet. We come to the type of Scripture that's called Hebrew poetry. We know it as the book of Psalms. You know, if we study the book of Psalms, kind of compare it maybe to the books of Moses, there's a lot of differences. A lot of differences between historical narrative and poetry. You know, when you read the stories of Abraham or Moses or Joseph, you kind of get the big picture. You get a lot of words. You get all the bells and whistles. You get all the details in those stories back in Genesis and Exodus. But when you read poetry, specifically Hebrew poetry, these phrases are very short. They're terse. These sentences are very short, yet they are very full of meaning. So these short, terse statements, they actually cause us to be very thoughtful about even the short couple words that's in a phrase in Hebrew poetry. And kind of unlike historical narrative, poetry uses all kinds of poetic devices. In fact, as we read and study the Psalms, we're going to find that the psalmists use acrostics, they use alliteration, they use similes and metaphors, they even use personification. But what we find is that these psalms, many of them are personal prayers. They're personal prayers from the people of God calling out to God, and they call out to God in all different phases of life. You know, when you read through all 150 psalms, it really takes you through the full spectrum of life. And what I mean by that, it takes you from the mountaintop experience to the valley experience. You know, sometimes you'll pick a psalm and you'll read a psalm and you'll read about the valley. That this person is in great despair, struggling with certain hardships, a lament, they're calling out to the Lord. But other psalms, you're going to find the person on the mountaintop crying out to God in praise. They are very joyful. It's really the whole spectrum of life from the mountain to the valley and everything in between is found in the book of Psalms. We're also going to find that the psalms are a hymn book. In fact, it was the hymn book of Israel. The people of God would sing these psalms to the Lord. In fact, from time to time, as you read through the Psalms, you might see a word or a symbol. You might say, what does that mean? I don't even understand that word or that symbol. Well, it might be because that is a term or a symbol that's a musical indicator. It's part of the hymn book 
of the Psalms, and it's telling the people of God something about the musical intent of that psalm. We're going to find that there's many different types of psalms. There's hymns, there's laments, psalms of confidence to God, thanksgiving psalms, psalms of remembrance, looking back on what God did in the Old Testament, specifically the Exodus. There's messianic psalms, psalms that point directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet the psalm we're looking at today is what's called a wisdom psalm. Psalm 19 is a wisdom psalm. It's teaching us about God's wisdom to us. And the title of this psalm, or this sermon rather, the title of this sermon is The God of Revelation. Now, I should have mentioned this before. Some of you have already noticed this, I think. In your bulletin, if you look on the left-hand side of your bulletin, if you open that up, you're going to find the breakdown of the sermon on the left side, all the, the kind of meaty outline of the sermon. But this title today is called The God of Revelation. So as we look at Psalm 19, let's first ask the question, what is Revelation? What does that word even mean? Think back to your wedding, brides. Did you have a veil over your face when you got married? Some brides choose to do that, some do not. But many times at weddings, you'll see the bride have a veil covering her face, even as she walks down the aisle. It's covered that you can't see her face clearly. Yet at some point in that wedding service, the veil is lifted and you're able to see the beautiful, amazing bride shining right there in front of the whole church. Maybe that was you. Maybe you had a veil in front of your face. Well, when the veil is lifted, that's a picture of revelation. The word revelation means to lift the veil, to see what is blocking, uh, to, see what, to, to take away that which is blocking and look behind it. To lift the veil. Another way to think about the word revelation, think about these curtains. We see that these curtains, these black curtains are closed. If we open them, and only if we open them, you could see what's behind the curtain. But right now, you don't know what's behind the curtain, unless you've been back there this morning. So the picture of revelation is to open the curtain to see what's behind the curtain, so that would be revealed to you. So when you think about Revelation, think about lifting the veil, opening the curtain to see what's behind the curtain. Beloved, in the Bible, God gives us revelation about himself. He, un, he, he lifts the veil, he opens the curtain so that we can see who he is and what he has done. And today in Psalm 19, the Bible talks to us about two types of revelation, what we're going to call general revelation and special revelation. And then we're going to see at the, at the very end, what should be our response to these types of revelation. So join me, if you would, as we look at the God of revelation, at general special revelation, special revelation, according to Psalm 19. Again, our first point today is general revelation. Look at verse 1. It tells us the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. 
So what is general revelation? It's simply this, that creation testifies to us there's a creator. We can look at creation, and creation testifies to us there is a creator. And as we look at general revelation, we're going to see it in three parts. You can see it in your notes. The voice, the when, and the where. Let's first look at the voice of general revelation because it comes from verse 1. A couple stories. Back in 1996, I took a mission trip to Ghana, Africa. It's been about three or four weeks in Ghana, sub-Saharan country, third world, world country. And I can remember being in Ghana at night. I loved nighttime because there were no lights around. There was nothing there to impede my view of the sky. So at night, when I was in Ghana, I would, I would kind of lay down and I would look up at the sky. And on a clear night, all the stars were out. It was beautiful. I'd never seen the sky like that before. Looking at all those stars, and as I'm, as I'm looking into what is millions of miles away, the stars are shining back at me. And in a real sense, the heavens, the skies, are declaring to me the glory of God. Creation is testifying to me that there is a creator. That I'm looking up into the expanse of creation and I see intelligent design, I see a purpose, and it's reflecting back to me. Now let's fast forward one year. In 1997, I went to the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. I had a physics minor. I needed to go do a lab. So I went to an astron- the, uh, the astronomy lab over at the Air Force Academy. And I spent three weeks looking through one of the world's largest telescopes into the sky. And I looked at what's called binary star systems. That, that means that there's two stars that are rotating like this around a center of mass millions and millions of miles away. I started charting what the light looked like over a certain period of time, and I found that there was a definite period that the light would, would, would cycle at a certain period, a certain time throughout the week. What did I see? I saw symmetry. I saw gravitational law. I saw design. And the heavens were declaring to me the glory of God. You know, when we think about even the earth, We look around at what God has created. We see that God created an earth. And this earth is not too close to the sun, and it's not too far away. It's in this perfect position to sustain life on this earth. The temperature sometimes gets hot and cold, but we live in such an area that we can live comfortably within this environment. This earth rotates on an is on an axis, and this axis tilts like this or as the earth goes uh, around the sun, it gives us four different seasons. This earth turns every 24 hours all the way around. And every 365.25 days, this earth goes around the sun. It it gives us this, this cycle that happens all the time. We look at the human body. We see symmetry in creation. We see design. We see purpose. And when we look at creation... Creation testifies to us that there is a creator. Intelligent design presupposes an intelligent designer. And what the way the Bible says it to us today is that there is a voice. There is a voice in creation that heaven declares to us the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. 
That's the voice of general revelation. And the, the Bible goes on in verse 2 to tell us the when. When does this happen? Verse 2 says, day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, every single day and every single night, that's when this happens to every single one of us. We are all exposed to God's creation. So it happens constantly, all the time. God is attesting to us His goodness, His glory, His power. Well, where does it happen? We've seen the voice and the wind, but where? I'm not going to reread the whole text, but if you look at verses 3 through 6, it talks about the sun. And as we learned, Hebrew poetry personifies certain things. The sun is personified in this text. The sun is called a bridegroom, a strong man, one who is full of energy. And as the text says, the sun makes its circuit. It rises on one end, makes its circuit, and it goes all the way around so that there's no part of creation that is hidden from its heat, says verse 6. So this means that God's revelation of himself in creation is everywhere. No one can deny because everyone encounters creation. No person can escape the knowledge of our Creator. I've often heard the illustration taught this way. Uh, did you go to the beach this summer? Anybody go to the beach? One of the things I love to do at the beach is build a sandcastle. Anybody build a sandcastle this summer? Love to build sandcastles. So with that in the back of your mind, I want you to think about this. Picture a person, maybe yourself, on the beach. The person's by himself, completely alone. And let's just say this man is walking down the beach, and he comes upon this beautiful sandcastle. And he looks at the sandcastle, and it has everything on it. It has towers. It has tunnels. It has a moat all the way around it. It's very structured, leveled off here, but raised up here. You, it's a beautiful sandcastle. But then the man looks up and he looks all around. He looks this way, he doesn't see anybody. He looks this way and he doesn't see anybody. He's all alone. Does that man say to himself, you know, since I can't see anybody around, um, I guess the waves crashed into the sand in such a way that it built up the sandcastle and maybe this other wave came and it created this moat around the castle. And maybe a different wave came and it built the towers over here and pushed the sand up. And that just kind of happened. Is that what goes through that man? Was that what go through your mind? That's ridiculous, isn't it? Now look, you can't see anybody on the beach. But you see intelligent design. You see creativity. So what does that presuppose in your mind? Even though you can't see the person who sat on that beach that day and made that sandcastle, you know in your heart and in your mind that earlier that day, maybe when you weren't there, somebody with purpose, with creativity, with intelligence, sat down and created that sandcastle. 
built that moat, put those towers up, and then maybe walked away. We all know that. We all know that it didn't just randomly happen. Why? Because creation testifies to a creator. Intelligent design points to an intelligent designer. And beloved, that is exactly what Psalm 19 is teaching us about God. That you and I hear the voice of creation. We see it everywhere. All the time. And creation testifies to us that there's a creator. And we cannot, we cannot escape that reality. You see, in general revelation, God is lifting the veil. God is opening the curtain. And He is declaring His glory to all of us through that which has been made. But here's the problem. The problem is what you and I do with that information. Lad read a moment ago from Psalm, or excuse me, from Romans chapter 1. I want to read one verse that he read a moment ago. This is Romans 1, chapter 20. It says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that men are without excuse. And actually, right before that, in verse 18, it says to us what men and women do with this information. It says we suppress the truth. It's a short little statement, but we have to know what that means. What does it mean to suppress? Suppress means to hold back, to push against. Specifically in this case, to hold back and push against what you know to be true. I'll tell you a story. From time to time, my dear wife makes a chocolate cake. That's a great day when she makes a chocolate cake. The problem is she leaves the chocolate cake out on the counter. And it's sitting there right in front of me all day. So every time I walk through the kitchen, i got to walk by the chocolate cake. The problem comes about 9 o'clock at night. You know, it's a little bit after dinner. Before you go to bed, you're a little bit hungry and you want that midnight, you know, that, that late night snack. And sometimes I walk through the kitchen and right there is the chocolate cake. Now, what do I know and what do you know about chocolate cake? Is that going to be healthy is that a wise decision? Uh, no, I mean, we know all about chocolate cake. It's, it's, you know, it's not going to do anything good for you, uh, you know, your health. But we love it, right? We love chocolate cake. Everybody wants a piece of chocolate cake. So what do I do in my mind at 9 o'clock sometimes with the chocolate cake right in front of me, and I'm hungry? What do I do? I take all that knowledge that I have about chocolate cake that's bad for me, it's going to cause me to gain weight, too much sugar. What do I do? I take all of that and I push it back. Get out of here. I don't want those thoughts. Go away. Now, do I know that to be true? Yes. But what do I do with it? I push it back. I suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then what do I do? Cut me a piece of chocolate cake, pour a glass of milk, get a fork, and let's go, right? Has anyone else ever done that? Please tell me you have. I, I at least one, okay. 
Now, that's sort of a silly example, right, of knowing something and going against what you know, but that's what suppress means. Suppress means to push against what you know. And this text says that we all, every single person on earth, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or an unbeliever, it doesn't matter, that every single one of us know that there's a God. It's been declared to us by creation. Creation is speaking, it's yelling, it's everywhere all the time. There's a God. The problem is that sinful man, on his own, takes that information and pushes it back. He suppresses it in unrighteousness, and he decides to go his own way. And if you read the rest of Romans chapter 1, you see how that man ends up. He ends up in his own sin in a terrible way. Dr. Kelly at RTS said it this way. He said, sin has an effect on man's knowledge like bad eyesight. Because of bad eyesight, man cannot and will not see clearly God's revelation in nature. He needs the eyeglasses of Scripture. Most people wear glasses these days. Glasses or contacts. Why? Because their vision's bad. We can't see things clearly. Man cannot see clearly. He messes it up with his own sin. Now, let me make sure I say something about this. It's not that man searches for truth and can't find it. Mm -mm. It's that man, when he encounters the truth, suppresses it and goes his own way. You see that? Man suppresses the truth and goes his own way, doesn't see things clearly. That's why God gives us a second type of revelation. Special revelation, which is Scripture. This takes us to our next point. You see, when the light of nature would not bring you and I to Jesus, God gave us something else. He gave us His Word. It starts in verse 7. You you see general revelation end in verse 6, but in verse 7, He talks about the Word of God. Special revelation. And what does He say? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. In other words, when creation wasn't able to revive your soul, I'm going to give you my word, my law, and through the preaching of my word, God says, the Holy Spirit will take that and draw you unto God. Now, we're not going to reread every verse from verse 7 on, but I want to look at it this way. As we look at special revelation, I want you to see three things, the nouns, the adjectives, and the verbs from these verses, verses 7 through 11. What are the nouns, adjectives, and verbs that God is revealing to us? God is pulling up the veil. He's saying, here's my word. Let me give you the nouns, the adjectives, and the verbs concerning God's word, special revelation. The first noun is found in verse 7. Law. The law of the Lord. What is God's law? It's His revealed will to man. The Word of God is God's law. It's exactly what God wants you to know about His will. Number two, verse 7, the Bible is God's testimony. In my old Baptist church, we used to have testimony nights. We'd all stand up one by one, and we would give an account, a personal account about something. Scripture is God's testimony about Himself. 
You remember that verse from 2 Timothy 3? All Scripture is breathed out by God. The Bible is God's testimony about Himself and about all of us. Number three, precepts and commands, it says in verse 8. This means that, that God's Word uses precision and authority when God addresses us. Fear is the noun of verse 9. As we learn from Proverbs, fear is that human response of reverence that we should have towards God and specifically here towards His Word. Rules in verse 9. God's rules are His judgments that He has made about human situations. Those are the nouns. Let's look at the adjectives of special revelation. In verse 7, it says perfect. Look at, the whole, look at the whole phrase. The law of the Lord is what? Perfect. Now, who wrote Scripture? Man, I just spent a lot of time saying Moses wrote this, and David and Solomon wrote this, and Isaiah and Jeremiah wrote this. Who wrote Scripture? If, if these men wrote Scripture, aren't all these men sinners? They are. Every single one of them fell short of the glory of God. So how can these men write something that this Bible calls perfect? Well, it's found in our doctrine of Scripture. I want to read to you a verse from 2 Peter. This is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. This is what Peter teaches us about that. He says, Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That all of these men, from Moses, or yeah, from Moses starting with Genesis on, the men who wrote these scriptures, yes, they were fallen, broken men, but the Bible says that all of these men, that scripture never originated in their hearts. It originated with God. And that God carried every one of these men along by the Holy Spirit. I always think about a mother carrying her baby along. I kind of do this when I say the verse. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. How did that happen? You see, the supreme author, God, used the personalities, the places, the events, used the skill set that each one of these men had, and by using His Holy Spirit to guide them, wrote a perfect word. He uses, used Moses to write narrative, David to write poetry. He used all of that to write a perfect word. Can a perfect God use a sinful man to write a perfect word? Yes. Yes is what the Bible says because the Holy Spirit oversaw that whole process. Verse 7 says, sure. That means that the Lord has confirmed His word. Whatever He says, He's going to do. Verse 8 uses the adjective right. That God is speaking to us in the Bible that which is right. Is there such thing as right and wrong in the sight of God? This verse declares to us there is. And what God says is right. It's pure in verse 8. The Psalms remind us that the words of the Lord are pure. They are like silver refined in the furnace. Verse 9 says clean. That means that God's word is not tainted by sin or any impurity. It's true, verse 9 says. There's no doubting the promises of God. And verse 10 calls it desirable and sweet. And that is just a way of saying it's the best thing ever.
We've seen the nouns. We've seen the adjectives. Let's look at the verbs. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving. Scripture revives. Paul teaches us that faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. Isaiah says when God's Word goes forth, it will not return to him empty. Beloved, the Word of God revives. When general revelation wasn't enough, when we looked at nature and suppressed that truth about God, what did God give us? He gave us His Word. And He raised up preachers to preach that Word. And God says that His Word is going to go forth and the Holy Spirit will accompany the preaching of God's Word and God will penetrate the heart of man through the preaching of the Word of God. That's what He says. That's how people come to know the Lord. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. That God chooses to draw men to Himself through the preaching of the Word of God. God takes this cold heart of stone and makes it this warm beating heart of flesh, as the prophets say. He revives the soul. Secondly, verse 7 says, It makes us wise. God's law is there to make us wise. That means it provides knowledge on how to live rightly before God. It teaches, rebukes, corrects, trains in righteousness the followers of God. This is the message of sanctification, of growing in grace. Verse 8 has the verb rejoicing the heart. This teaches us that true joy only comes, only comes when we live in a right manner before God. As Paul said, I can be hungry or well-fed. It doesn't matter. I'm content with obeying God. The last verb, enlightening the eyes. It gives light. We've learned that God's Word is a lamp to our feet, a light unto our paths. Beloved, when general revelation teaches us that there's a God and we suppress that truth, know that God loved you so much to give you special revelation, to give you His Word. He even committed it unto writing. And these scriptures are the eyeglasses that we need to see this world clearly. Beloved, if you're saved today, give thanks to God that He has revived your soul. Give thanks today that God has enlightened your eyes through the pages of Scripture. Well, let's close today. And as as we close, let's ask this question. How do we respond to this? How do we respond to His general and special revelation? The Bible answers this. Look at verses 12 through 14 one more time. The Bible says, Who can discern His errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Then let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. How do we respond to this, beloved? We respond three ways, three prayers. The first one is a prayer of forgiveness. The first thing the psalmist does here is ask the Lord to forgive him of his hidden faults. You see, the light of God's Word 
has lifted the veil. The light of God's Word has opened the curtain on the psalmist's heart. And he needed to acknowledge his sin before God. It's the same question I have for us today. Today, through this text, how has God lifted the veil of your heart? How has he opened the curtain of your heart on your life today? Are there certain things that you need to ask forgiveness for? Maybe you have lived your whole life anti-God. That might be some of you here today. If that is you, I'm delighted that you're here because I've got wonderful news for you. The Scriptures declare to you today that there is a God. But maybe you have lived in such a way where you have denied His creation, you have denied His intelligent design, and you think the waves moved together and just randomly crashed on that beach and moved that sand in such a way that it looks that way. If that is you, hear the words of Scripture. Creation testifies to you there is a Creator. You can seek the forgiveness of God by going to Him, confessing your sin to Him, and trusting Him. This is a call, beloved, to repentance. As this text says, we can be declared innocent, says verse 12. And it's not because of anything that we have done, but it's because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That Jesus died for our sins, that we can be forgiven, that we can be right with God. Go to the Lord confessing today. But the second prayer, verse 13, it's a prayer for purity from sin. You hear the psalmist say, pray that we be kept from presumptuous sins. Beloved, has God pulled the veil up on your life to show you a presumptuous sin that you need to lay down at the feet of Jesus? This is a text that teaches us that our lives are to be pleasing with the, to the Lord. Think about it this way. Think about the nouns. Are we living by God's word, His law, His statutes, His precepts? Think about the adjectives. Are we seeking that which is sure, right, pure, clean, and true in the sight of God? And the final prayer, number three, is the prayer for God-honoring words and thoughts. Verse 14, I mentioned it a few weeks ago, is a verse that I want to challenge you to memorize. It's a verse I want to challenge you to start every single day of your week with. As you're riding to work, as you're riding your, driving your kids to school, if you're staying at home, pray this verse. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And as you pray this, think about the verbs that we use today that may God's Word continue to make you wise so that you can have honoring words. May God's Word continue to enlighten your eyes so that you can have honoring thoughts to God. The words of my mouth, the meditation of our heart, may it be pleasing unto Thee that everything I have, Lord Jesus, I'm laying before You because You are my rock you are my Redeemer. You have bought me back with your blood. And I want to honor you 
with my life. Pray with me, please.